this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Everybody. My name's John. I'm one of the elders of this church, and I'm the eldest elder. And I'll just give you a quick itinerary update of what the other two are doing today. So Graham has taken James Green, and he's off to Whitchurch to support another Christ Central church up there. And Ray and his lovely wife, Bea, have gone to Cyprus for a holiday. So that leaves, that leaves just me. And I'm feeling a little bit mischievous this morning. Is that OK to feel a bit mischievous? Is that all right? OK, so I just feel a bit playful. I just feel I want to churn things up a little bit, so just bear with me. Um, I, was, um, I know we often hold these up, and, and Paul's already done a great job in talking about visitors here today, uh, but I was reading through this this week, and there's a couple of things that struck me about this. The first thing is, uh, it talks about here about loving one another, and Kevin's just brought us a wonderful uh, sort of overview of why we should be loving those that don't know Christ yet, and that was really powerful. Thank you, Kevin, for bringing that. In here, it talks about loving one another. And I just want to honour a group of people in the church, really. And I realise you're not all here, but it's very good. The writer of the Hebrews talks about spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. And it's good to honour those that diligently serve in the church. So if you are a member currently or have been a member of the PA team here in Jubilee, could you just stand up for a second? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This is one of those unseen teams and unseen tasks that happens every Sunday long before most of us get here and they're here long after most of us leave. And we really do appreciate you guys and girls that serve in that team. It's really good of you to do that for us. And some of you have been serving for so long. And it's a shame James is not here because I'd love to get him to stand up as well. But if someone can pass on our grateful thanks, I would appreciate it. So that was one thing in here. The second thing in here, which I wish I hadn't read now, it talks about here about us having powerful preaching. I wish I hadn't read that. So I know there's three questions about that. Number one, who on earth wrote that? <laughs> number two, why did they set the bar so high? And number three, where is my nearest exit, I think, this morning? So anyway, if you're a visitor this morning, you join us as we start the last in a series, which we've entitled A Mission-Minded Community. And it's been a very practical overview of church life. But if you've missed some of those topics and you want to catch up, then they are all available on our website. So very briefly recap, over the last six weeks, we've covered this. Holding mission and community intention. It's not either or, but it's both together. The second week, we talked about building community and pastoral care, which is predominantly through our life groups. Week three, Graham talked about keeping the main thing the main thing. So be outward facing and witnessing, but under the umbrella of what God is doing. Week four, Matt talked about reaching out, even though there's work to be done here in Jubilee in Derby. And Burton is only now 56 days away from launching as a church plant. Week five, we talked about welcoming the stranger into our community. It's Adoption Sunday, and we talked about homes for good and fostering. And then the last time, Graham spoke on having a global perspective to the nations and especially our work in Cambodia. So today I'm wrapping up the series. I'm hopefully closing the circle and um, I hope to leave you with some observations. 
some challenges and some encouragements. However, there is no doubt in my mind that we will never fully grasp the depth and breadth of these topics until we've understood and embraced two elements, namely vision, what are we going for here as a church, and faith, how will we reach it? So you can see I brought a toolbox with me. Um, I'm not here to fix anything in particular, but in all my days in working in management, one of the things we were always encouraged to do is to take a toolkit into different situations. So you might be going into a situation with me, I work for a supermarket company, and you go and visit some people and you realise that actually what the tools they needed were different from the other store down the road. So you take, not a practical toolkit, but a, a, a toolkit with you of, of different aspects. So I am going to be talking about some visual aids today, and the only reason I'm going to talk about it is not because you can't see what I'm doing, it's because occasionally somebody might listen to the podcast and wonder what on earth I'm talking about. I know that you do that anyway, but in general terms, I'm going to hold up the thing and I'm going to explain what I'm holding up. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Fantastic. Okay, so the topic for today is faith-filled vision. So the first thing I want to talk about is vision, but I need to make a slight confession you see my eyesight, I'm in denial. And I don't mean I'm standing in a river in Egypt. Good, you're with me, thank you very much for that one. I just need reading glasses. I'm too stubborn, but my physical vision does need adjustment. But in the King James Version in Proverbs 28 verse 18, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. So without the call and vision of God, Moses would not have led God's people out of Egypt. Without vision, Nehemiah would not have physically seen and wept for Jerusalem and then set about leading and inspiring the people of God to rebuild the walls again. And without vision, Joshua would not have taken God's people, crossed the River Jordan and entered the Promised Land. And without vision, the Apostle Paul would never have moved out of his hometown and established churches and ministries right across the known Roman Empire. So what about us here, or if you're a visitor, how good is your church in setting vision? I believe in Jubilee, we are very blessed to have Graham. He's, one of his great strengths is setting vision. He's very strategic and very focused. So I'm now going to introduce you to the first thing in my toolbox. You won't be able to read this from where you're sitting unless you've got extremely good eyesight. This is Jubilee Church's vision statements written in February of this year. And in it, it covers pretty much everything. It talks about what our key priorities are. It talks about our culture. It talks about where we are now, our leadership capacity. It talks about what we're doing on Sundays in the office, financial. Uh, and it talks about the goals for the end of this year. Uh, our gatherings on Sundays, our community, and then the last thing basically is what we're going to be doing over the next five years. It's a really powerful document, and, and Graham has spent a long time putting that together. But if he left it in his in-tray, if he did nothing with it, it would be a pointless exercise. It needs to be brought to life. So we talk about it, we inspire people, we include and involve people in that. We cast the vision, and hopefully we start moving out with what's in that document. You see, without vision, without seeing what can, is, and can be accomplished through gods, we can become like a sailing ship in a harbour, totally becalmed. We stagnate, and like that ship, all momentum seems to be lost. 
We need the vision to put up the sails and let the Holy Spirit blow, propelling us forward again and opening up the promises and dreams that may be lying dormant in our lives. The message translations of Proverbs 28 says this, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. So stumbling here suggests to me a lack of orientation, a lack of destiny, and confusion. Well, talking of confusion, I used to work in a bakery many years ago. And one of the things in a bakery sometimes is we used to get some infestations of certain things. Now there's things called sockets and weevils, and there's a thing called confused beetle. And I thought, naively, that a confused beetle was just a beetle that went round and round in circles in the flower. And that's what happened, actually. When you looked at the trail, it looked like these beetles had been going round and round in circles. They had no destiny, no way out of the flower. But actually, from a scientific point of view, the reason they're called confused beetles, my learned Wikipedia told me, was actually there's a black and a red variety, and if they're covered in flower, you wouldn't tell the difference between the two things, and you treat them differently. So confused beetle going round in circles, and that's a little bit about what this verse is talking about. But 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 says this, For God is not a God of disorder or confusion. So my visual aid number two is not a confused beetle. We'll have less of that heckling. Is God has a personal plan for your life. I hope you recognise that. It's important that you do. He, he knows you and loves you with an everlasting love and knows every single hair on your head, which is easier for him to know me these days than it was 20 or 30 years ago. <laughs> so, this personal plan, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What a wonderful verse that is. There should be something very reassuring in the intimacy of those words from God to us. But just for a second, let's come back to the second part of that Proverbs. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Think for a minute. What has God revealed to you recently and how are you attending to it? What are you and I currently going for that we cannot do apart from God's power? Or put it another way. What is the vision you have personally set for yourselves? Is it so large that you have no hope of achieving it apart from God breaking in? If not, we might consider the possibility that we might seriously be under-challenging ourselves. I'm not talking about our corporate vision here, but I'm talking about our individual vision. See, corporately, we have the building that we're going to hopefully purchase, praise God, and we have Burton Family Church to plant. And indeed, your vision and faith might be very stretched in these two wonderful opportunities to take the gospel forward. We are indeed thrown on God for both of these amazing adventures. But what are you and I doing that we cannot do apart from the power of God in our lives? So we've talked a little bit about vision, but what does the Bible say about faith? The writers of the Hebrews puts it like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. So my third visual aid is a tube of toothpaste, Colgate toothpaste. Now, you'd have to be 
around in the middle 60s to late 60s to understand what I'm trying to get at here. I haven't quite gone off my rocker. Because the statement behind this on the television used to be, Colgate, the ring of confidence. Thank you. So the next time you're cleaning your teeth, remember your confidence is in your God. That was a bit of a naff one, wasn't it? Never mind. I'll try and weave that one in there somewhere. I do not ever claim to have seen God, but I know that there are many that would do so, and some of you might be here today. But by faith, I know this about my God. You see, he's for me, and he loves me with an everlasting love. And he is able to do immeasurably more than I can ever ask or imagine. And he will never leave me or ever forsake me. And that's the same for you. I don't need to have physically seen God to know these truths. They are written in my heart by his Holy Spirit and through the impartation of his word. And I'm in agreement with King David when he wrote, I have tasted and seen that the God is good. So faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We must be confident in our gods. So how do we achieve this? We need to maybe change our perspective sometimes. We need to see God through eyes of faith. And we need to check our mindset. Carol Dweck, an American professor of psychology, wrote several papers on fixed versus growth mindsets. And if you're in the business world, you may have come across these. But she argues that a fixed mindset might be someone that avoids challenges, gives up easily at any obstacle, and sees effort as fruitless or worse, It's a type of cup, half-empty person. Then she argues in another paper that a growth mindset is a person that embraces challenge, persists in the face of setbacks, and sees effort as an enduring path. And we might see that as a cup, half-full. But Christians, we, should embrace a growth mindset because our cup overflows. So, my fourth Visual aid. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Thank you. No, oh, no paparazzi. So what's this leading to? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I find it so very difficult to fix my eyes on Jesus. And I know it's not just necessarily a physical thing. I know it's a spiritual thing. But I'll give you an example. Last Thursday, uh, my wife Julie was out looking after our youngest granddaughter in, in Derby, and I thought, right, I've got a framework for this preach. I need to sit down and I just need to get before God and say, God, is this what you want me to bring to the church? So I sat down in a nice comfy chair looking out into the garden. And I just thought, well, I'll fix my eyes on God by just looking out into his wonderful creation in the garden. The problem was, as I looked out into the garden, I thought, hmm, gosh, that greenhouse needs cleaning. And actually that shrub needs cutting back before, before the snow comes. And actually that grass probably needs cutting as well. I completely lost it, so I thought, oh, that's all right. Let's adjust the cushion in the, in the lumber in the back, just get nice and comfortable. And I thought, well, if I can't fix my eyes on Jesus by keeping them open, let's close them. 
The problem was that that seat felt so very comfortable and that cushion was just in the right place. And actually the radiator was just on by the side. And actually I sort of drifted off into some, I don't know, some space out there somewhere. So fixing your eyes on Jesus is sometimes very difficult, isn't it? But we're encouraged to do that here. Paul is encouraging us to do that. And Paul does help us actually later in, in Corinthians when he talks about this wonderful analogy of an athlete preparing for a race. And he says that. And, and in my Bible, the, the title is The Need for Self-Discipline, which absolutely spoke to me. So let me read this to you. So that's 1 Corinthians verse 9, verse 29, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in a, such a way to get that prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do, not, they do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. You see, here's Paul recognising how difficult that is. But what is this crown he's talking about? What is this prize? Well, in Timothy, it's called a crown of righteousness. In James, it's referred to as a crown of life. And in Peter, it's referred to as a crown of glory. And Paul realises that this flesh needed to be brought under control. And in the King James Version, it calls subjection. We need to suppress our flesh. And I know I must continue to do that in my walk with Christ. My flesh will always rebel about getting before God in my quiet times or reading the Bible. There will always be a distraction somewhere. We need to bring our bodies into subjection to the word of Christ. But that second part of the Hebrews verse, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I wonder if you've ever considered that. I looked up the word pioneer, the definition of the word pioneer. And one of those definitions is trailblazer. And I just love that thought of Jesus coming down to earth and blazing a trail through death and hell and sickness <coughs> on our part that we should walk in the inheritance of what he's done. You see, Jesus, the servant king, endured, suffering every kind of hardship, yet was without sin. He trailblazed in our place for us. Why did he do that? Well, this verse tells us, for the joy set before him. So what was this joy? Was it the joy of being betrayed? Was it the joy of being spat at? Was it the joy of having nails? knocked into his hands and feet? Was it the joy of having a spear rammed into his side? Was it the joy of the accusations of the people around the cross? Was it the joy of the crown of thorns placed on his head? What joy could there possibly be in that physical and mental torment, even to the point that God the Father forsook him? No, you see his joy, his death and resurrection was wrapped up in the fact that that would bring salvation to you and I and ultimately to the whole world. That's why he endured the cross. That was the joy he was looking forward to. You see, he has ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand and is interceding on our behalf. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. It's not like you and I, after a hard day's work in the office or the school or whatever, we come back and we sit down in a chair. God is not like that. 
Paul and Nats, would you come up here, please? So here is... Here is my fifth, and I'm going to get out of the way, visual aid. It is a curtain. Okay, so if you'd like to put that one to the bottom. Thank you. Yes, you can, but I need you back. Thank you. After he ascended... It was said it is finished. And we have free access into God's presence now. Freely we can come, not once a year like that veil or curtain represented in the Old Testament, not coming from the Holy of Holies into the holy place. And only once a year could the high priest go in there and come back out having been with the presence of God. Imagine that for a second, if you could only access Jesus once a year on a special day or someone could access him on your behalf. It was not after exhaustive sacrifices in the moment of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection all that changed for us. You see, in Philippians 2, it says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is bringing fresh revelation to some here this morning. <coughs> he wants to remind you that it is not by works, but by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. It is not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul and Nats, can you come back up again? Okay, I'm now holding up a height chart. Okay, now this height chart is a treasured possession in our household. When the grandchildren come round into our house, they love to be measured and see how much they've grown since the last time they were come round. Now, if they come down the day before, then they haven't grown much. But if there's been three or four weeks in between visits, then they will have grown up on this chart. So... My second youngest grandson came the other day and I measured him up here and he was 96 centimetres tall and on here he's as tall as a golden eagle and he was thrilled with that. He was a golden eagle and he went away very happy. So we're going to do the same. We're going to do the same with Paul and Nat, okay? I've got heels on me. You've got heels on. What's all right? Is that all right to take the heels into account for Nats? Yeah, fine, okay. So... Uh, we just want to make sure that she doesn't cheat, Paul, so make sure she doesn't go on tippy-toes here. Okay. So, right, Nats, you're 159. You are one thousandth of a mile. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Wonderful. One thousandth of a mile. Okay, actually, you're just under word Julius. That's interesting. Okay, let's do Paul. Stand still, Paul. No tippy-toes now. Okay. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Paul's a yeti. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. 
Couldn't happen to a better man, I think, but anyway. Okay, thank you, guys. Now, why have I got this up here? Because we need to keep reminding ourselves of something about God. Ephesians 3.18 says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's people to grasp how high and long and wide and deep is the love of God. So, next time you think about your height, think about that. <coughs> right. Faith always comes at a cost, or it wouldn't be faith. So, my last visual aid is my wallet. Now, no, it's not still in its original wrapper. Don't be so cheeky. It does come out on Sundays. <laughs> but... I want to talk about the cost of being a disciple. Because Jesus said, leave your nets and families and follow me. You see, when you and I are prepared to count that cost, we step out in faith. And it therefore becomes more likely that we will step out again. So let me give you an example of that. Your life group, and hopefully you're all part of our wonderful life groups, Let's say on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whenever you meet, your life group leader is asked, someone asks a life group leader to come and pray for them. And you think as a life group leader, right, I'd love to go and pray for that person, but I'll take somebody younger in the faith and walk across the room with them so we can pray for that person. You as that individual have never prayed for healing before for anybody, but you recognise there's a cost in moving out, let alone praying for that person. However you do it, and praise God, that person is healed. The next time someone asks you to go and pray for somebody, you're much more likely to do that again. You see, it's not the fear of stepping out ever goes away, but that you get used to living with that fear. However, you must realise that fear does not have the power to destroy you. But beware, the cost of not moving out in faith is that we stay spiritually dormant, and God's voice and call gets a little quieter in you and then you do not hear his call at all. So let's think about the cost involved in the building that we hope to purchase for a second. What if this building is not for us at this time? Have we failed in some way? Well, my practical observations are we could not have done more in a practical way to get this building. And I just want to, just again, I know Adam stood up here last week and praised the trustees and especially David as well. The trustees of this church and David have done an immense job in preparing us to purchase that building and I just want to honour them here this morning. So very practically, we could not have done any more. My spiritual observations are this church's dynamics in faith has changed over the last couple of months. If you were privileged enough to be at the last prayer meeting we had in Sunny Hill, there was such a rise of faith in that building for the building. It was just amazing. We stepped up, we're, we're much more mature than when we started this journey. And even if we never get the building, we are never going to be the same again as this church. I hope you recognise that. It's important to know that even if God isn't, this, God isn't in this timing, we've moved on. But if we don't get it, we need to be aware of our reaction to what might be perceived to be some sort of failure on our part. 
You see, failure is not an event, but it's rather a judgment about an event. Failure is not something that happens to us or a labour we attach to things. It is a way that we need to think about outcomes. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister during the Second World War, was asked what most prepared him to risk political suicide by speaking out against Hitler during the appeasement years in the mid-1930s and then to lead Great Britain against Nazi Germany. Churchill said it was the time he had to repeat a grade in elementary school. You mean you failed a year in grade school, he was asked. I never failed anything in my life, Winston replied. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. Therefore, we can reason this, that whenever we put ourselves in a position to fail, we also put ourselves in a position to grow. Remember, this failure will never shape you. Rather, the way you respond to failure will shape you. So let me finish with the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Don't look back. Never look back. Izzy and Caroline, can you just pop back up, please? <coughs> so, as we finish this series on being a mission-minded community, let's briefly recap on some of the tools we may need. first thing we talked about was the strategy document. Have you got vision for your own life? Will you move out if God calls you? And remember, if you stay, you go. And if you go, you go. There's a sense of momentum when we set a vision for God's people. Number two, do you remember the intimacy of what God's done over your life? He has a personal plan for you and for what you're going to be doing in life. It's intimate. It's got your name written on it. It's only for you. No one else can own that. <coughs> Number three, other brands are available, but Colgate. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The glasses, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The curtains, and just as a side issue, if you came and ever come and live in our house or stay in our house and you wake up one morning and the sun is streaming through on your bed, remember Paul and Natalie what they did to my curtains, will you? <laughs> so, Hebrews 4... 16 says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It is finished. The curtain has been torn in two. We have free access into God's presence. The height chart. 
Let us grasp how high and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ over our lives. And finally, the wallet. There will always be a cost to stepping out in faith. The pain of potential failure, embarrassments, inadequacy and criticism. But there will always be a far greater price to pay if we never step out at all.